Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Gin and Beer. I am your host, Meg, and this week I am very excited to be joined by Tristan Stevenson. Hello, Tristan. Hey, how are you doing? Good, good. Thank you for joining us today. So Tristan has a CV that is as impressive as it is intimidating. Um, He has been in the industry for 20 years as a bartender, as a barista, chef, bar operator, and a writer. He has eight award-winning bars in London, Bristol, and Cornwall spread across the UK, one of which is Blackrock, which I have been to. I've had the pleasure of going to. It is very near to my office back when we were actually going into the office, and it was kind of a classic place we're going to celebrate our wins and promotions and things like that. So I love BlackRock. Um, It's also the name of the company that I work for. So part of the reason why (laughs) everyone from my company loves going there. Um, He has seven books, one of which is The Curious Bartender, Volume 1, which was the first book that I read when I started obsessing over mixology and cocktail making at the beginning of lockdown. And it sits proudly on top of my bar at home. And he is the host of the Bar Chat podcast. So he is a fellow podcaster. So thanks, Tristan. Is there anything I missed there that you'd like to touch on? No, no. That's I think that's more than enough. Uh, <laughs> making me tired to just think through it all. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So thank you so much again for joining. And I think this is just an exciting opportunity. As everyone has heard on every episode of the podcast, I am absolutely no expert. I have no experience in the hospitality industry. Um, now that I'm so into, you know, home bartending and things like that. I sort of wish that when I was in my teen years and doing every odd job I possibly could, I wish that I had worked in the service industry just for the experience. But um, so it's always good to talk to industry professionals and especially in these unprecedented times here, how things are going. So first question I think I should ask is how did you find your way into the drinks world? What was your kind of career well, path from the start? <coughs> well, um, there's, I'm from Cornwall in the southwest of the UK and it's, it's, it's a big tourist hotspot. So growing up here, you tend to um, fall into hospitality sort of automatically because there's obviously a huge demand for uh, waiters and waitresses and chefs and baristas and bartenders um so it's easy to get work doing that um but um some of us end up doing it for longer than we intended and like most people in in um certainly in bars and bartenders it wasn't my intention to become a bartender that wasn't what came up in my careers interview at school um but um you know I dropped out of university didn't have much else to do and and I ended up um actually working as a chef for a short amount of time um very low down the ladder in terms of seniority in the uh in the kitchen basically washing dishes and grating cheese was um sort of today's activities and um i ended up leaving that job um because it wouldn't give me time off to go traveling around the states um when i got back from the states um i got a job as a bartender in a restaurant that was just opening up um this would have been this was ooh, 2003 um and um yeah started working on the bar and we had about two weeks um to get to know the drinks list which is a cocktail list that had been written by the owner um so that we were sort of competent at putting these drinks together and and could um uh you know deliver them quickly 
And so we spent like the better part of two weeks practicing these cocktails, tasting them, getting to know them. And it was a it was a pretty good list, actually. I think it was about only about 15 or 20 drinks on there, but it really covered kind of all the basis in terms of classics. Um, you know, there was old fashioned blood and sand, daiquiri, Singapore sling, um, martini, just kind of all the world's most famous drinks, really. Um, so it was a good kind of initiation into the world of cocktails. Anyway, um, the restaurant opened. And I think the second day after it opened, the bar manager had a falling out with the owner. And um, he walked out. So that left sort of a team of two or three, four bartenders. It wasn't, it wasn't a big team um, with no manager. And I just sort of kind of stepped up and and you know started taking more responsibility. They paid me more money, and that was when I really started getting into drinks. And I think I was you know complimented on occasion by the owner or by by the guests, and realised that actually perhaps there was something in this that um, you know craft to it that I could get better at. And like I said experience in kitchens so I you know wasn't um totally unfamiliar to me like putting together a, a a drink off a menu um off a spec sheet and um yeah it all went from there we did, used to feature a cocktail every day a different one and we had um an old copy of the Difford's Guide or I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but it used to be called the Source Guide when it first came out which was around that time 2001 2002 um and every day we would feature a different cocktail from that book. And over the so over the two years that I worked there, on a, give or take, a bit less than two years, we went through, you know, 500, 600 different cocktails. So by the time I'd finished at this place and moved on to my next job, I'd made a lot of different drinks. In fact, you, once you've made sort of 500 different cocktails, you've sort of made them all really because anything else is just going to be sort of slight iteration on 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 one of those formula um in fact to be honest with you if you've made 50 cocktails you've probably pretty much covered it all um so that was my sort of um early schooling in 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 bars which is a lot of it really with learning on my feet i i never never um in all of my career worked under a bar manager um, apart from that sort of one or two days that the guy was still there before he walked out so i only ever had bar management jobs after that um or indeed yeah only my own places um so it was sort of um yeah like uh a baptism of fire really but um yeah and it, and it strangely sort of made me it gave me a sort of quite unique i guess approach to drinks and a sort of philosophy behind it because i'd never really had anyone to learn off and this is like especially early on it's sort of pre-internet but Certainly, there wasn't really much bar community on the internet. There was a few forums knocking around. So when you're living in a remote part of the country like Cornwall and there aren't any other good cocktail bars and you don't go to London very often and there's no online resource for any of this stuff, you know, some trade magazines, um, you just sort of make it up as you go along because you have nothing really else to, to base it upon. Sure, yeah, that, that makes total sense. And so would you say that you had an affinity for cocktails and drinks in general before you took that job? Or was it the challenge was kind of thrown at you and that bar manager left and suddenly you were like, oh, actually, I'm quite good at this. And mm. you found the passion. Yeah, the way. latter. Yeah. Yeah, I had I had really no interest in cocktails whatsoever um, before I took that job. Um, I don't know if I'd ever even had a cocktail. If I had, then it would have been something 
pretty awful. Um, you know, wound will or uh, some something like that. Something a cocktail with some sort of sexual connotation in the name, probably. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, it was a totally new thing. I, and you know, it's you got to remember, it's changed a lot. Like back then, cocktails were still sort of seen as being this sort of like kitsch, sort of fancy Tom Cruise flaring, um, you know, bartender in a waistcoat uh, or a black shirt. Um, it, you know, n- none of the sort of culture that surrounds it today was there at that time. You know, it was just seen as being a bit naff, being a cocktail bartender. Um and obviously that's changed changed a lot. And so that's, you know, probably part of the reason why at the time, to me at least, it didn't really seem like a, a profession to aspire to. Um, but then, you know, so when you get to sort of make it your own, um, then that's when interesting things can happen. Yeah, definitely. And so you've also had experiences as a barista and a chef. Would you say that those spawned from being a bartender that you you know, it's kind of an easy step from if you can make drinks, then you can use that appreciation towards coffee and food and everything else, I'm sure. Yeah, totally. I mean, the the barista thing, although I've been making coffee since day one, it was um, actually in my second sort of cocktail bartender job that I I left the first one to to do, um, obviously, because that's what you do in a second job. where I got into coffee. So that was working at another restaurant in Cornwall, which is 15, which some people may know as being associated with Jamie Oliver. Um, it's closed. In fact, it closed about a year ago, unfortunately, after around about 15 years. So I was on the opening team for that restaurant. And when you work as a restaurant bartender, as opposed to sort of, you know, a cocktail bartender in a, in a bar, um, or, or indeed if you work in a hotel bar, you actually spend quite a lot of time making coffee. Um, now, most of the people that I know who, or did at the time anyway, who worked in restaurant bars used to hate that part of the job because it didn't really seem like there was much sort of skill to it. Whereas, you know, making great cocktails and garnishing all that seemed to have a sort of craft to it. So, um, and, and I, I was one of those people as well. But at 15, because there was so much care and attention going into all the food and the cocktails, and even things like the smoothies we were serving at breakfast, I felt like it was doing coffee a bit of an injustice not to, um, you know, think, uh, spend some time considering what makes a good cup of coffee, the ingredients, um, the the brewing technique and all that sort of stuff. So I got really into it. And there was a period of a couple of years there, or a year at least, where I was far more interested in coffee than I was in cocktails they sort of took a back seat to my coffee obsession um and again you know it seems so obvious now that you of course you'd make efforts to do great coffee and you'd explore different brewing methods for a restaurant operation but 15 years ago it just wasn't the case you couldn't get a good cup of coffee in a restaurant for love nor money in the uk anywhere um and you know we started to try and change that with 15 and really started putting a lot of emphasis on training and and and, and um, barista competitions as well when they were in a sort of, you know, earlier stage of, of their um, uh, development. Um, and then to, to your point about um, chefing, I so I did do a brief bit of chefing, as I say, at the start, but very low down in the kitchen. But later on, um, when I was opening my third venue in London, 
um, we were doing a kind of gourmet diner concept. And I'd just finished writing my first book and gotten really into sort of flavor science um, and, and also using a lot of culinary techniques in construction of the cocktails I was creating. And uh, I've, when we were looking at recruiting someone to run the kitchen, I was getting increasingly sort of frustrated with handing over the reins of this really important part of the business to someone who perhaps wouldn't share the ideologies and understand the concept properly. So I just said to my business partners, like, look, I'm going to do it. I'll, I'll run the kitchen for um, the first three to six months, see how it goes. Um, but I, such a kind of control freak was I and perfectionist that it ended up being kind of like the undoing of me because I, I couldn't I couldn't trust anyone to even work my days off to get things right. And it was a tricky kind of menu that we were operating there. We, it, it was, we, it, the, the menu was based around sausages and we were making our own sausages. We were even grinding the meat. Um, so we sort of had a, like a butchery section to the, to the kitchen and it was really tricky to manage and run and um, yeah, a bit of a disaster actually in the end, but it was fun, like applying sort of the principles of running a bar to running a kitchen and, and seeing how that works. Um, and, you know, they're not that dissimilar, really. Um, it's just about sort of scrutinizing everything and ensuring that you're, you're you know, you're making the best decisions in terms of ingredients and, and obviously the way things look and, and so on. Yeah, definitely. No, I bet there would be a lot of similarities. And do you think from that experience, well, I'm sure from that experience, you gained a lot of technique in terms of cocktail and food pairing because that for me like especially because I don't have any experience in the industry apart from you know knowing which cocktails are good as like an aperitif and you know good nightcaps and things like that I don't really think on the whole I would know where to begin with what cocktails pair well with what food but I feel like that's a skill or something to dive into that could be really exciting especially like you know while we're all sat at home it's just a nice way to tie everything together from the drinks that you're mixing as well as the food that you're making. Yeah. I'm, I, do you know what? I, this might come as a surprise. I'm not a big fan of cocktail and food pairing. Um, I think it can be done really well and it can work. Um, only it, it usually tends to work best with certain specific types of cuisine. What I don't think it does well is serve as a replacement for good wine mm-hmm. with food. Um, I think that's an extremely difficult act to follow um i think um cocktails can work well with sort of small salty bite type things like tapas and stuff like that certain tapas dishes um but even then often you're including wine as part of the ingredients like a sherry or something like that Mm -hmm. um and i think it can work really well with desserts as well but um i think it's a lot harder with sort of you know typical savory dishes to find cocktails that pair really really well um so it's something we've explored in the past and you know in some ways you're kind of just extend extending the garnish of the drink and creating a food around it but it is really difficult when you've got multiple items on a plate to then sort of integrate a cocktail serve into that and for it all to balance nicely that that's my experience of it anyway i've never really seen it done very well um or in, in such a way that it's as effective as wine no, I think I think from my much more limited experience, I'd have to agree. I think I, if I 
envision my perfect meal. I think I'd like to start and finish with cocktails, um, unless I want to finish with a dessert wine. But I, I, I think you're absolutely right because the reality of wine is that it's, wine is coming from the same terrain that the food we pair with it is coming from. You're never going to get a match that's better than that when it comes to a cocktail, unless like you said, you incorporate wine into the cocktail, like a sherry or a port or whatever. So no, I think that's interesting, but it definitely, it definitely makes sense. So where do you typically get your cocktail inspiration from when you're coming up with designing new drinks yourself? Mm, Well, that's a good question. I mean, a lot of the time it tends to be based around a single ingredient um, and a sort of suspicion that that ingredient will pair well with a particular spirit. Um, so, you know, sometimes you just taste something, a spice, fruit, herb, whatever it is, and you're like, hmm, that just it feels like there might be a natural affinity between that ingredient and and a whiskey or a rum or whatever it might be. I mean, like you think about something like coconut, for example. Um, coconut, when I mean, it comes in different forms, but that's just sort of generally coconut flavor, is quite prevalent in spirits that have been matured um, because you get some of the same compounds that are in coconut coming from the barrel, um, especially American white oak barrels. So, you know, if you taste something, it might not be coconut, but something that has a certain coconutty character to it, then for me, it's like, right, let's start drawing the dots here. What might that work well with? Well, it could work well with rum. It could work well with certain specific types of whiskey, like a grain whiskey, which often has sort of coconut kind of aromas. And then you sort of build it out from there. And, you know, it could be a case of adding in a sort of contrasting ingredient or something that, um, you know, ingredient that perhaps coconut pairs with in, in the culinary world quite commonly, or then thinking about ingredient that coconut pairs with and thinking about another ingredient that's similar to that, but slightly more left field. So for me, it's like a case of sort of joining the dots between different kind of flavors um, to sort of build this flavor map like a, and a concept of a drink. And so, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and nearly always it requires lots and lots of tweaking in order to get it exactly right. You you're never going to get it perfect the first time you mix it together. And I think that's probably one of the differences between a good drink and a great one is with a great one. You can tell that the balance, you know, the quantities of these ingredients have been tested in, you know, every single possible um, combination Mm -hmm. until that correct balance, that correct sweetness, dryness, finish, alcohol strength, aromatic intensity, um, perhaps color has been achieved um, and then when that happens you end up with a drink that's sort of great and the sum of its parts and not really the you know not really the, the result of a combination of ingredients anymore but just a drink in its own right that you know naturally seems to have this affinity with its flavors definitely so would you say that that's a an iterative process that you applied when you were writing the curious bartender books and the different recipes that you included in there kind of perfecting whatever that Mm. combination is based on those ingredients well that book's an interesting one because the the structure of it and and the same goes for the second volume is to take a classic cocktail that you know is well known um and discuss that 
drink, the themes that surround it, the ingredients that go into it, the sort of culture or time and place in which that drink was invented and the justification for its invention, whether that be through you know, availability of certain ingredients or a trend towards certain flavor profiles or tastes. Um, and then obviously instructions on how to make that drink. And then it's after that comes my sort of modern interpretation of that drink. So the the basis for the um, the original drink is is in is in the classic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just about tweaking things, changing things, to, in order to sort of celebrate that drink, but almost bastardize it into something that's like modern and and at times quite absurd. Um, and so, with that, there's all sorts of different ways, strategies, techniques that I use to do that. Sometimes I might you know, distill an ingredient from scratch. Sometimes it might be, you know, a sous vide um, infusion over a period of hours to extract flavor from something. Sometimes it might be saying, okay, well, the original um, liquid uses, uh, drink uses Cointreau. So why don't I source some oranges that are going to, you know, make a slightly different riff on this flavor and infuse them into spirit and sweeten it so that I can, you know, create an original interpretation with a homemade orange liqueur. Um, sometimes it might not even be something around the ingredients, but it might be more around this wider sort of theme of the drink and then integrating an ingredient or a piece of glassware or garnish into that cocktail that sort of enriches the story behind the creation of the drink. So that's, it's, that's a, it's a fun way of doing it because you already have a basis for the, um, uh, original drink that you're Mm -hmm. trying to create in that sort of story of the cocktail and its ingredients. So for the average drink in that book, because you did loads, how long would, did you, would you say it took you to put together, you know, the history, um, the original recipe, and then come up with your own? Because it must have been quite a labor of mm. love putting that all together. Yeah, I mean, I would say at least 50% of the original drinks were already drinks that were kind of floating around in my bars or very close to drinks that were floating around my bars. So, you know, a lot of those cocktails, the the legwork had already been done, um, you know, in the years previous. The classics obviously are there. That just requires, you know, quite a lot of research and writing. Um, And then, yeah, there were, you know, 20 or 30 drinks probably that were created entirely for that book and I mean it varies sometimes these cocktails you know you can get it nailed within a couple of days just uh, tinkering with ingredients and in other cases it's like you know I this is this is taking a long time it's you know perhaps months worth of kind of going back and forth to it um trying new things screwing it up and starting again kind of thing um until you get there so it's difficult to put a time on the whole thing. I mean, it took me a year to write the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's taken me a, probably slightly less to write the the books that have subsequently followed. I mean, the, oh, which one was it? The, the American whiskey book. Um, no, the second cocktail book, actually, I wrote very quickly. I think that was in around about 16 weeks. Wow. Um, just uh, shut myself away and, and wrote it fast. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, the coffee book was the easiest one to write. That one I can hardly even remember writing. It just flowed off <laughs> and, um, it was like a kind of 
trance flow state type thing that I was in, I think, when I wrote it because it was the easiest book to write and I was really happy with the way it came out. And um, yeah, the, the spirits books I've done are the tough ones because you have to do all the travel as well. Um, so we, we, try, we, we try and visit every distillery that features in those books. So we've done hundreds of distilleries um, through the course of the series. Um, and, you know, it's interviewing distillers and taking notes and obviously the photography um, and then sort of trying to process that all into some text that makes some sort of sense um, afterwards and a narrative that goes through the book and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's, this has been the longest, actually, longest period I've had of not writing. Um, I have actually got a book coming out in spring, but it's not got much original content in it. It's basically um, 75 cocktails from across all of the different books all combined into one volume. Um, but I'm hoping once the world gets back to normal um, to get to begin work on a tequila book, tequila and mezcal. Um, but I can't really do that at the moment because with travel the way it is, um, you know, a five week trip to Mexico is not yeah, really. Yeah, you definitely need to travel for that. No, that, that yeah. actually leads me to one of the things I wanted to ask you. So you had mentioned earlier that um, when you got into coffee, that that kind of took center stage and, you know, everything else went on the back burner. So do you find, because I feel like with creative people that have passions like we do, it, it's all very like obsession based and we go through our different phases. So do you find that that's what's, what's happened over the years with you? And, and did your books kind of reflect where your head was at that particular point in time? Mm. Yeah, well, it definitely there has been different obsessions um, uh, over the years. That's for sure. Um, the books, in terms of the times in which they were published, are not reflective of those periods as such. The coffee book is actually a funny one. Um, I was I'd just written the first book, but it hadn't um, hadn't been published yet. I think it was about three weeks away from publication date, and. Um, my publisher were really happy with the way it turned out and they'd obviously got quite a lot of pre pre-orders as well. Um, and I went into their office to talk to them about writing a whiskey book. And, um, I was not entirely confident I could do that at the time. I was n by no means a whiskey expert. I was definitely more rooted in cocktails, but, um, they, they asked me if I wanted to do it and you know, I'll never want to sort of turn down an opportunity even, even if I'm completely incapable of doing it, I'll have a good crack. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to just say yes to this and I'll, I'll work out how I'm going to write a whiskey book and, and put in the, the groundwork and, you know, become a whiskey expert if I have to, um, one way or another, I'll make it happen. But while I was in the office, I was just about to leave and um, they said, Oh, and if you know someone, who might write a coffee book we're interested in publishing one on coffee as well and I was like oh, okay cool um anyway I had someone in mind um a friend of mine James Hoffman who's uh you know a really well-respected coffee expert owns Square Mile Coffee in London and um I left the office and I dropped him a message and I said look my publisher's um interested in writing a coffee book um you know you'd be perfect for it do you do you want to do it and he was said, well, actually, I'm already got got a publishing deal with another publisher and I'm, I'm in the middle of writing a book. And I was like, oh, fair enough. So then I thought about it a little bit more and I was like, hmm, I I could write the coffee book. Um, you know, I was actually better placed to write the coffee book than the whiskey book, uh, if I'm honest. So um, I went back to them and said, look, I'm, I, you know, I, I sort of asked around a little bit, but I'd really like to have a go at it myself if you if you sort of trust me to do it. And, you know, I mentioned my experience with coffee. I mean, I had 
I was third, I placed third in the UK Barista Championships a few years before that. So I knew 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 a few things about coffee, um, and uh, it was something that I was generally genuinely felt passionate about writing. So um, they said yes, and um, I signed a contract for two books at the same time, due to be published at the same time as well. So I had to write two books simultaneously. Um, but actually, as it turned out, the coffee book got delayed um, by six months. They wanted to delay it purely from a PR perspective. Um, seemed a bit weird kind of promoting me as doing these sort of two different books at the same time. So I did end up writing the whiskey book and then straight onto the coffee book. Um, and I published three books in the space of 18 months. The first three came out pretty quick. Um, so, yeah, it, the coffee book was being written at a time where I wasn't really making coffee anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, I was running my first two bars in London and um, didn't. Well, I was making coffee at home, um, but didn't have a lot of it, not a lot of my day was devoted to kind of coffee stuff. Um, but, you know, threw myself into it, bought all the equipment I needed in order to do all the sort of testing and brewing and everything and, and for the photography uh, for my photographer. We did a lot of photography in my kitchen at home and um, yeah, it came out really well. Yeah, that's great. It's kind of serendipity. So, so you said the, the coffee book was the, it just kind of came out the easiest and you're really happy with it of, of the spirits ones. Do you have a favorite or one that you're the most proud of? Yeah. I mean, the one I'm most proud of, well, I think probably they've got better as they've gone along. The, the rum book was great because um, it was the most complete kind of rum distillery profile book um, in English. Anyway, um, there are some pretty good ones in French knocking about. Um, and um, being able to travel around all those distilleries was was so good um dave broom wrote a really good rum book a few years ago um i think it's just called rum um and uh, but it, it had aged like a lot of the sort of information there was outdated um so it, it felt to me like this was my opportunity to go around and sort of update that and and that's what i did and so i was really proud of that however the whiskey american whiskey book which i published a year ago i think is probably the best of the spirits ones um and the reason for that is i took a different approach to it so with the gin and the whiskey uh, the gin and the original whiskey book and the rum book basically the format is a large sort of section at the start of the book around the, the history of the spirit then a section around you know, how the spirit is made generally and then a profile of all the different distilleries and sort of showing how they do it differently and then some tasting notes on the spirits they make and then it finishes with some cocktail recipes now, with the American Whiskey book, I took a different tack and it was a quite ambitious and quite difficult to pull off. And I'm not entirely sure I did pull it off. But what I wanted to do was to create more of a sort of narrative to the experience of traveling around these distilleries. And so it, be it became a road trip book um, where we ticked off each distillery, 44 of them, I think, in total, traveling around the states i think we did 32 states and um as, as sort of the book starts at the start of the road trip and it finishes at the end but to add a sort of additional layer of complexity into that i wanted to tell the history of american whiskey um and from as we progressed from one distillery to another 
And so it was important that the earlier distilleries in the book were more appropriate to the earlier history of distilling in the States. And the later distilleries were more appropriate to the world, the sort of current state of play in, in American whiskey. Um, fortunately, the distilleries in the US are sort of geographically dispersed in such a way to tell that story. So the distilleries on the East Coast are far more traditional, generally, in, in what they're trying to do. Um, whereas the series on the West Coast are much more modern and in some cases doing some pretty wild stuff um, that's very kind of um, geeky, uh, let's say. So um, that's how the book's arranged. Um, and so it's it's fun. It's sort of, you know, it starts in, um, in Virginia um, at the distillery called Reservoir. And I sort of tell the story of you know, the first distilleries in the US that were set, you know, founded in the 1600s, early 1600s, and, you know, what happened there and the cereals they were using, and then it moves up to, like, you know, George Washington's distillery at Mount Vernon, and there's a bit of American history intertwined in there as well, um, you know, the Revolutionary War and um, Civil War um, uh, and, and so on. Um, so, yeah, it's it's... I think I hope that anyone reading it will kind of get a little nice bit of sort of American culture and American history in, in the reading as well. No, that's great. I I particularly love, you know, drinks or even food-based books that kind of read more like a novel um, and take you just through that history through the lens of whatever spirit or wine or whatever it is that the, the subject matter is. So, yeah, I've only read – the Curious Bartender Volume 1. I, I did literally read that like a volume, uh, like a novel, though. Um, but I need to pick up one of the stores in my neighborhood has the Your Gin book and loads of them. Every time I walk by, I'm like, oh, I need to just get those and, and read them because I love, I love the layout of your books. Mm-hmm. Um, but outside of being an author, you are also co-founder of eight separate bars. So what... What was that experience like? What when did you? What made you decide to take that leap to actually? Because that's a very very difficult undertaking, um, opening up a cocktail bar and and what was that experience like for you? Yeah, well, when I set up a consultancy company with um, my business partner about ten or eleven years ago, and um, we never intended on opening a bar, but we we managed to sort of get a good, a good couple of jobs and had cash in the bank and mostly sort of due to concern that you know this cash might run dry we thought well let's open a bar we can use that as a sort of shop window for our services um and you know provide then hopefully a steady steady revenue stream um, of income um so that's what we did we opened our first bar pearl about 10 years ago over 10 years ago i think um in marylebone don't own that anymore i I sold my shares in it uh, about six years ago seven years ago um and it was such a success. It really, you know, again, timing was right. It was a very different situation in London. There were some good bars knocking around for sure, but nothing like the sort of quantity um, that there are today. And um, there was nothing at all in in that sort of part of London. So um, it was it, it was it was really a great success. And a year later, we we opened an, another bar in uh, Shoreditch, Whistling Shop. Again, don't own that one anymore either. Um, and um that one did well too and then so we sort of gradually became bar operators rather than consultants um and since they were profitable we thought well we'll just keep doing this um 
but um you know we ended up having a few setbacks there were bars that we opened that didn't work very well the one i mentioned where i was the chef that one was a, a flop we closed it down after less than a year of being open um and then we eventually sort of stumbled into this whiskey concept called black rock that we'd been thinking about for a few years we for a long time we thought that whiskey bars really needed a bit of a shake-up they're they're not great spaces traditionally they're quite intimidating and um quite elitist and we felt like there was a sort of democratization of whiskey required um because a lot of people were interested in drinking it they just didn't really have a place to go and to sort of learn about it without being preached at and enjoy it on their terms whether that's mixing a drink or, or neat or, or over ice or whatever so we created black rock and really that's what our focus has been on now for um the past uh past few years um we've also got a restaurant as well surfside which again is another place that i chefed at for for the first year um but um black rocks where our, where our main focus is in terms of bars um we've got our whiskey subscription company as well which i'll tell you about in a minute as well um but yeah we've we've since opened another couple of black rocks um sadly our one in bristol we've just had to close um due to the ongoing situation which is a shame um but we're going to be opening another site in london at um towards canary wharf direction um in the new well probably in the new year god knows when <laughs> we've got the site it's just uh, a case of working out when people are actually gonna be able to go and visit it um which is cool so that's good and 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 yeah uh, uh we've got two there and in, in um uh in shoreditch uh, near finsbury square um one on top of the other um black rock tavern which is more of a sort of whiskey pub and then the basement bar below which as you say visited a few times <laughs> um fortunately your company haven't come at us with a lawsuit yet for uh, using the same name so i think that's we good. drank there too much for that to be justified <laughs> so you did well putting it near the office i think if it had been somewhere inaccessible really by chance and when, when we came up with the name it was um we didn't even we were sort of vaguely aware um of uh, of black rock but um the reason we called it black rock is because um it pops up in whiskey quite a lot there's um a couple of expressions called with um i think bowmore did one bowmore black rock and then cardu the, the whiskey story cardu is actually um gallic for black rock so and it just didn't seem very whiskey-ish as well at the same time it felt like something that was just sort of different and indistinct and um it's it, yeah, it's a good name actually it seems to have really really worked and that that original bar has done you know good things we class magazine um every year do an awards um for the industry and um one of them is best uk's best specialist bar and black rocks won it every year since it opened um that's which amazing. is amazing yeah yeah that's really great so, I mean, you did, you alluded to the challenges that you've faced and are probably going to continue to face for a bit with the, the ongoing pandemic. But in the spirit of keeping things positive, because we all know that the hospitality industry has been hit, you know, probably the hardest um, of, out of everyone during this time. Are, th- are there any potential benefits to the hospitality industry that you foresee because of the challenges that this year has brought? Is there anything that you think quite good could come out of all of this and you know different ways that people might have to think things like that yeah well i mean a lot of places uh having some success doing cocktail deliveries to people's homes i mean i don't know 
I say success. I mean, you know, it's keeping ticking over and doing something. But I, I, I doubt anyone's really kind of, you know, making millions in that sense. Um, but, you know, it's a creative industry and it has inspired some creative thinking in respect of how we can kind of stop the ship from sinking. You know, there's more outdoor drinking going on. Um, you know, even innovative ways of doing menus and, um, and and so on. And so, yeah, will there be any benefits? I think probably it, it's it's forced people to think differently and 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 find new ways of generating income. Um, I think in the very long term it will be beneficial. In that, in the very short term, there's going to be an awful lot of closures, which is going to be sad to see. But what will happen after that will be an emergence of a whole new um selection of bars that will be taking over those premises and probably doing cool new things and you know it'll be a, like a kind of a reboot of the industry um that will be super exciting i expect you know barring another pandemic pandemic in a couple of years from now we'll be seeing you know some a, a, a large number of really exciting openings going on in cities um as these as these venues are taken back over again yeah, I think there's. I I totally agree, and I look for. I think there's going to be exciting open dis, openings from the industry perspective, and I also think from the consumer perspective, perspective, there is going to be a renewed sense of appreciation for going out. Um, just because if everyone is spending so much time at home, they'll realize how nice it actually is to go um, yeah. immerse yourself in a different environment and have someone, you know, make cool drinks for you with ingredients that it might not be easy for you to get yourself and things like that. So I think that, um, you know, naturally society, if we'd all gone a bit stagnant or had just taken for granted, um, especially, you know, with me living somewhere like London where I just have access to world-class places literally at my fingertips, um, Mm. wouldn't really say I feel like I lost appreciation for it, but I'm sure certainly going to have a lot more appreciation for it once, once things are fully back open. So yeah, I do think that that'll be one benefit and I'm hoping we do have some sort of like roaring twenties of, of new places. Yeah, that would be nice. I mean, I, I tell you what I really miss is sitting at a bar. Yeah. Um, I was actually in, in a couple of pubs yesterday, um, down in Cornwall and, you know, it's great that we can still go to these places and they're not closed and we can support them, but it's not the real experience, unfortunately. It's, you know, your distance from the bar. It's all the way to service. Um, you know, it's, you know, there's procedure and everything when you enter the venue and procedure when you leave because you've got to leave out the right door. Um, all those things, which, of course, are designed to keep people safe. But, you know, it takes some of the the, the fun and the freedom out of, you know, drinking in, in a pub, which is, is really one of the reasons why you go there. Um, and, yeah, sitting at a bar, watching a bartender make you a Manhattan and, you know, getting to enjoy that drink and chat with the bartender. It's not there at the moment, and it, it's um, something that I miss. That's absolutely what I miss the most as well. Even just, you know, for me, going out for a nice dinner was a whole production of, like, typically showing up to a restaurant, you know, 20, 30 minutes before my reservation, sitting at the bar and having a drink. Um, like you said, chatting to the bartender, finding somewhere nice to go afterwards. Um, you know, I think the last in January, I went to um, a bar, a gin bar in Notting Hill. And it was just one of those nights where it wasn't that crowded. So we sat at the bar and, you know, the guy was just like, well, tell me what sort of flavors you like and I'll make you stuff. And those are some of the best drinks I've ever had. And that's just, yeah, I, every time I go out, like you said, 
really glad that these places are still open and, you know, still able to serve people. And I'm also more than happy to adhere to whatever guidelines they need to put in place in order to stay open. But it's just not the same. Um, It's Mm. not the same experience. It's also removed, at least in London, because it's so crowded here. Um, It's removed any sense of spontaneity whatsoever. There's no, you can't, Mm -hmm. even just a pub, you really can't just go to the pub anymore you if you are keen you really should have a reservation because there's a good chance you're going to get there and they're not going to have tables that can be spaced out you know a meter apart and things like that mm. yeah yeah no i agree it's and like spontaneity it's nice just to be able to walk into a pub isn't it yeah um, and you know fine with a restaurant you expect to have to book and it, that's sort of part of the ritual of going there isn't mm-hmm. it but not not with a pub no, no, and even to, and you know, I mean, I can't say that going and standing at a pub was ever my favorite pastime, but just the fact that you have to go, you know, it has to be a a seated table and and things like, and it, it just it it throws off the, for lack of a better term, the vibes. Like I went to a pub last weekend and they didn't have room downstairs; they they had a room upstairs and. Um, we went up there and, you know, it's all tables seated like you're at a restaurant, but it, it was like three o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday and they were just blasting like clubbing music. And I was like, none of these <laughs> pubs know what to be right now because, Yeah, you they know, don't know what what purpose they're supposed to serve. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I feel for them in that sense. So no, it's, uh, it's tough. But so you did mention that you have a whiskey delivery service as well. What is that like? Yeah. So we, as a sort of extension of the Black Rock concept, which is really to sort of make whiskey for everyone. Um, we devised a, a whiskey subscription club, which we launched about three years ago. In fact, almost three years ago. Exactly. I think, um, and it's pretty simple. We just send 50 mil, a 50 mil pouch of whiskey to you every single month. We choose what whiskey it is. Everyone gets the same whiskey. It comes in a in a kind of Capri Sun style pouch, um, which upsets some people, but um, excites others. Um, <laughs> it's not just a gimmick. It's, it actually works really well. They're very difficult to break. Um, and they also fit through letterboxes. And they don't require any sort of extra packaging, like bubble wrap or anything like that to keep them safe. Um, means our postage costs are much cheaper, which we pass the saving on to our customers. Um, and um, it's sort of now become a little bit of a iconic um, whiskey service vessel. It's like a sort of 21st century hip flask, really, I suppose. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, we've been going three years. So we've featured 36 whiskies now. And um, it's it's sort of growing in numbers. We've got about two and a half thousand members um and growing quickly we're in the run-up to christmas now so we we hope to attract quite a few more um and um we've just taken a sort of investment round where we're going to be expanding it to um european markets and hopefully the states as well if we can sort of navigate all the chaos of importing booze and distributing it over there (laughs) it's bad it's Um, very bad right now yeah my my mom is a like single-handedly keeps Laphroaig in business and the cost of her <laughs> Laphroaig tenure has gone up astoundingly um, back at home mm. in Chicago because of all the taxes and things like that. But no, you should, you should, because there's a lot of whiskey enthusiasts out there that would love that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's would you happen say, eventually. would you say between the books and the whiskey service and Black Rock, would you say that whiskey is, is your spirit? Is that kind of where your passion lies? 
the most yeah i'd say so more than anything else yeah for sure um it's i've definitely kind of settled on that i'm a big fan of rum um i don't drink that much gin anymore usually only in cocktails but um even then i don't drink gin cocktails that often um but uh yeah whiskey's whiskey's a pretty regular feature in my life i'm not quite daily but most days (laughs) Actually, that that's something that I wanted to ask you as well, because I've noticed from following you on Instagram that you're also an ultra marathon runner, um, yeah. which uh, I'm not an ultra runner. I've run five marathons, but I don't think I'll ever do an ultra. That's just um, <laughs> a step above me. But so how like for someone in the industry, how do you find that balance between a healthy lifestyle and constantly, you know, making and thinking about and drinking booze yeah. all the time? Well, um yeah, I mean, I don't drink. I, I probably drink um, three three days a week, maybe, um, and um, and regularly, uh, not very regularly, to any kind of level of excess, especially at the moment. <laughs> um, and I think probably the you know running and my training schedule helps to sort of balance that because you're going to suffer that much more when you've got to run for a couple of hours in the morning yeah. if you've been drinking the night before. And so it's sort of a, uh, you know, a protective barrier against kind of enjoying too much um, because I know that it's not just a case of sitting through a hangover the next morning. It's, it's probably running in the rain with a splitting headache. So um, yeah, it, they, they help to balance each other because then, you know, when I do do take time to, you know, enjoy myself, I can do it with, uh, you know, without, you know, a, a guilty conscience knowing that, you know, I'm taking a lot of time to stay fit as well um, outside of that. So, yeah, it's um, running, running takes up quite a lot of my time, actually, <laughs> increasing amounts of time. But uh, today was my rest day. So um, I've uh, just been sitting around eating. Yeah, no, I I know that feeling exactly. And certainly whenever I'm marathon training, I feel like it helps keep me in check because I do my long runs on Saturdays. Um, Mm -hmm. So I usually don't drink on Fridays at all. And since Fridays are a day that a lot of people would probably (laughs) overindulge, especially when we were back in the office and you'd go for after work drinks, that helped me um, not have to worry about feeling horrific on a Saturday. I just knew, okay, I'm running. I'm just not going to bother with drinking. But yeah, it's, it's tough. I found it tough during lockdown. Um, I was, I've been pretty, you know, followed my own rules I've set for myself pretty strictly, but I think it could be quite easy, even if you're still working, um, just working from home to slip into some sort of habit where you're drinking on days that you normally wouldn't. And, Mm. uh, and yeah, it's, it's tough. Or starting drinking earlier in the day kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. No, totally. Yeah. I've got, I mean, I've got a couple of children as well and, that sort of prevented that from happening because it's too busy. Yeah. Um, it's not like, you know, when when they're still up and causing complete chaos, you know, pouring a beer or a glass of wine isn't really going to kind of fix that situation. No. It's only once they're in bed that you're like, right, now I you know, can, can let my hair down. Yeah. Um, and then you certainly don't want to feel horrible for when they're up the next morning. <laughs> no. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. No, I can see how that would help. My, I mean, my parents don't drink too much by any means, but I've definitely noticed that they drink more now that me and my sisters are are older because it's just they just have much less to worry about when we were kids. I can't even imagine with us running around trying to drink all the time. It would have just, like you said, it would not have solved any problems. No, no, it would have created a few for sure. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining today. It was really interesting chatting to you. Um, is there anything? Oh, thanks for having me. Of course, yeah. Is there anything you would like to plug by virtue of your own podcast or anything you have coming? Yeah, up? well, if 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 um if, if the sound of my voice isn't too horrendous uh, for your listeners, <laughs> then they may be interested in in listening to the bar chat podcast that I do. Um, it's it's actually run by Diageo, um, big spirits company. Um, as part of their education program, they have a bar academy and bar chat, sort of a, a a, a, a certain um, spin-off of that really though you know it varies um, as to how educational it actually is <laughs> um, but we've done um, I think we've done around about 20 episodes now um, and I'm, we're going to do another 20 at least um, they're sort of coming out every couple of weeks and it's pretty much entirely industry professionals um, from various different walks of life who do various different things um, um, yeah, yeah, it's great. I can endorse it. I liked your, the most recent episode. I think you were chatting about kind of the mental health impact of um, of this pandemic situation. And even though, like I said, I've never worked in the industry, I think a lot of the tips and stuff you guys go over, emphasizing exercise and things like that, are useful for everyone. So yeah, to all of my listeners, definitely check it out if you have the chance. And yeah, thank you, Tristan, for joining. Much appreciated. All right, thanks, Megan. All right. So that about wraps it up for this week's episode of Gin and Beer It. Thank you so much to everyone for listening and a special thanks to Tristan for being this week's guest. I have to say, after reading The Curious Bartender from cover to cover in the first UK lockdown, as well as visiting Black Rock in London, which is his bar, I was super thrilled to have Tristan come on. So I had a really fun time chatting. I hope he'll come back on again soon. I have also subscribed to his Whiskey Me whiskey delivery service and just got a notification that my first whiskey pouch is coming sometime next week. So I'm super excited for that and we will probably use that for a Thirsty Thursday coming up to um, video me trying my first whiskey. So that should be super fun. Stay tuned for that. Um, besides that, pretty much business as usual. Thirsty Thursday videos every Thursday on the Instagram at Gin and Beard Show. Um, shows coming out every Sunday night. Please rate, review, tell your friends, spread the word. And besides that, I will catch you guys next week. Thanks. 